Hello, listeners. This is a special edition of our podcast series, Half Hour of Heterodoxy, a recorded conversation with Jonathan Zimmerman. I'm Amna Khalid, the John Stuart Mill Faculty Fellow at Heterodox Academy. This is part of our series on the past, present, and future of university teaching in America. Jonathan Zimmerman is a professor of history of education at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the new book, The Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America. It is the first full-length history of college teaching in the United States from the 19th century till today. The book includes an examination of the many failed attempts to change how we teach students at universities. John Zimmerman is a founding member of Heterodox Academy. I began by asking him why he decided to write his book. The reason I wrote the book is several fold. First of all, teaching has always been a huge part of my identity and my personality. Uh, it's the most important thing that I do, and I've always felt that way. And so I was curious about its history, um, uh, why it's changed, and most of all, why it hasn't. Uh, but I also live in the present, just like all historians do. And there were present day questions and concerns that motivated the book, which I think goes for most histories. And one of the stories I tell at the beginning of the book is that maybe six, seven years ago, I was at a debate about a very relevant topic right now, online instruction. Uh, this is well before we knew that all of us were gonna have to do it. And you know, it was what I, I, I say in a jocular way, it was the futurists versus the Luddites. And the futurists said everything was going to be better in the online world, uh, maximal access and all sorts of different variants and options. And the Luddites said that everything was going to be worse. And one of the things I realized at the end of the talk was what they had in common. What they had in common was they thought they knew what the baseline was. If you want to say that everything is going to be better or that everything is going to be worse, you must have at least some implied notion of what that everything is, what the baseline is. And I think that we didn't. And that's what I tried to do in the book, was just provide that baseline. You know, look backwards to, to, to try to examine how teaching happened, um, how people tried to change it, um, what actually changed and what didn't, so that we could have some sort of baseline from which to have that dialogue. Fantastic. And so you started off, I mean, this is done over 59 different institutional archives. Tell us a little bit about the process of collecting the material that you then go on to analyze. How did I choose them? I chose them based on where I could find material that I thought would be useful to me. Archives turned out to be hugely important to this project because teaching has largely been something that happens in private. It's weird. I mean, it's a public activity, but it happens behind closed doors. And there's actually very little reliable print record on it. So I really did need archival unpublished sources to try to get at what people were thinking and feeling about this. And so I tried to find the archives where they had um, lots of records from faculty committees about teaching, lots of memoirs by professors themselves, um, lots of unpublished student evaluations, which is what they initially were. And I will, I will admit that there's a bias in the sources because lo and behold, the archives that had the most voluminous and the richest material were generally rich schools like Princeton, where my mom is. 
Um, so there's a Princeton type bias to the book about which I'm not pleased, but in some ways I couldn't get around. In fairness, I did manage to get to a lot of big flagship universities, especially the Cal schools, but community colleges, mid-level state universities, for-profit universities, these are not well represented. Uh, and I think that's, that's a weakness of the book. It's a weakness of the book, but it's also indicative of the state of the lay of the land, so to speak. Um, and I think you, it, it comes through very clearly. Yeah. Um, so if I can still stick with the question about the archives, what was the biggest surprise? You know, I thought about that today because I had a feeling that you would ask. <laughs> um, and I think the biggest surprise was just how much protest there's been around this subject how much activity by students themselves to try to change college teaching. The big errors for that are the 1920s and then the 60s and 70s. But in the 1920s, you know, there was a conference in upstate New York where representatives from over 50 colleges and universities, student representatives, showed up to debate and deliberate the question of A, why college teaching is so bad, and B, what, what can we do to make it better? And that was a real revelation to me. Um, the 60s protests, I was a little bit more aware of, but even there, you know, if you think about something like the Port Huron Statement in 1962 or the free speech movement at Berkeley in 1964, you think appropriately about the nascent civil rights movement, the beginnings of the war in Vietnam. You know, these were political movements that were very much oriented towards and about the big political questions of the day. But at the same time, if you look at both of those uh, movements and indeed the Port Huron statement itself, you see a lot about teaching and how bad it is. You know, the Port Huron statement says things like the faculty are all about research now, so they're neglecting teaching. And what they're also doing is neglecting the issues we care about, like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hmm. Uh, that's all in there. Um, and so I would say the biggest surprise is just the amount of both kind of organized and, uh, if you want to say, sort of subterranean and undocumented activism around this question. All right, so someone who's, I kind of want to ask two questions right now. One is about the role of student activism um, in reflecting on our times today. I'm going to hold that for later. But the question I want to ask is, as someone who, who is in the profession of teaching as well, and um, I, I felt when I was younger and I was making the decision to go into academia, this pull, right? There's this pull, if you're going to go to an R1, you have to cut corners on your teaching. And you have to, you know, that's that's a load you bear, as you say in your book. It's it's kind of your job that you have to do. And then your real passion is research, which is what you have to be doing and pursuing to excel in this field. Um, and I was in South Africa at an R1, which, which I found very unsatisfying. And I moved here to a small liberal arts college precisely for the love of teaching. But upon moving here, what was interesting to me was that what I thought was a teaching institution was no longer just a teaching institution. It had transformed. And the kinds of demands that are being made of people, even in what have historically been teaching institutions, are, are very different now. Can you comment a little on how that process has happened and, and how the distinction between what is required at a research university and a teaching college have been collapsed over time? Well, this is what uh, David Reisman, who was uh, arguably the sort of greatest chronicle of American higher ed, called the academic procession. And he was not talking about graduation. You know, he was talking about the, the rows and the lines that we make and how, to your point, they end up converging. 
Everybody wants to get into the next row. So a normal school doesn't want to be a normal school anymore. It wants to be a teacher's college, but actually that's not very good, right? So actually this just be a regular college, but even that's not so great. So let's be a university. And indeed the first academic job I had was at Westchester University and it followed exactly that trajectory from normal school to teacher's college to college to university. Um, that's where the status is. And especially after the federal government gets into the grant making business, that's where the dollars are. You know, so I mean, I don't think you have to be sort of a hidebound materialist um, to understand how and why this, this happens, but it is dejecting because, you know, one of the themes in the book is that in earlier eras, places like Carleton were, were, were more different, if you will. You know, um, they were marked, they were salient because of their accent on the teaching function. And now to be clear, it's not that there aren't great and committed teachers at Carleton because there are, um, but there's been a convergence. So Carleton and its friends are less distinct and uh, everyone has their favorite quote from their book. But my favorite was when I was in the archives at Colby College, another lovely little liberal arts college. And sometime in the early nineties, they're setting up a center for teaching and learning, which everybody was making at the time. You've got one too. And this old head, you know, some, you know, like 70 or 80 year old guy about to retire, he writes this memo where he says, a center for teaching and learning, isn't that what Colby is? <laughs> you know, and, and the answer is no, right? It's what Colby was. I think that's his point. And that's why he was so baffled by the idea. And there's this sort of, there's a painful irony there because of course, you know, very active creating the center on the one hand, it's supposed to signal to the world, right? That you take these functions seriously, but I think you can read it in a very different and much darker way, which is, you know, we've lost sight of the function, the point that we have to establish a separate office for. Absolutely. I think it's it's fascinating. And I love that quote. I, I, I read it and it just kind of made me chuckle because I was thinking this, this is the kind of question that occurs to me when I go to our teaching and learning center and um, suddenly we have the space where we're going to talk about it, whereas that's the entire enterprise. Um, let me shift a little bit and ask you to talk a little bit about um, how the mode of instruction itself has changed and, and the ways in which it's changed or not, or what are the critiques that have been of the classical kind of lecturing uh, way of delivering knowledge. Um, you write about that beautifully in the book. And the tension there is between, you know, passing on that information or education and the critiques that it is just becoming more about engagement and entertainment. And where have those critiques and attempts to reform that way of teaching, what have they led us to? Well, you know, I think the, uh, the lecture and this ubiquitous function dates to the progressive era. And it dates to two things. First of all, just the enormous boom in universities, you know, between about 1900 and really going into the 1920s. Um, many more people in seats. Um, that means you have to put them in ever larger rooms. And um, in a space like that, uh, as we know, with the chairs bolted to the ground, you're going to end up lecturing. The other thing that happens is the professoriate itself changes. Um, so, you know, you don't have these avuncular ministers like you had in the 19th century, you know, who taught courses with titles like, you know, the natural philosophy of the world or the moral philosophy of the world. You have specialists like yourself and myself um, that have got those three letters next to their name. Um, uh, this is the beginning of what in 1903, William James called the PhD octopus. Uh, James had a medical degree, but not a PhD. 
Um, and one of the questions to be asked, which seems to me is cognate to this entire discussion is, who seriously thinks that those three letters mean that you're a good teacher? I think the answer is nobody thinks that. James didn't think that. I don't think that. You could be, um, but you could not be. Um, and uh, the lecture starts to change, um, or I could be more precise. The lecture starts to lose its ubiquity, its, uh, you know, uh, its um, complete dominance in the 1920s because of these protest movements. What happened is places like the University of Michigan got huge all of a sudden. Um, uh, the big reasons for that was the 20s were a time of prosperity and uh, uh, women were going like in huge numbers. So suddenly you find these student accounts of people saying, okay, I went to a room that was supposed to fit 100. There were 200 people there. Um, uh, there was a dude up front with a microphone that didn't work. He was mumbling, why am I here? Um, uh, you know, um, I'm not gonna learn from this. Even if I can hear him, I'm not gonna learn simply from listening to him. Uh, and so what you see in the 1920s are a, a wide range of different experiments as they were called. Um, so tutorials and precepts, um, uh, kind of small groups where you meet with a generally a youngish faculty member, often somebody that is looking for a more full-time gig. Um, uh, uh, you had um, a place like Rollins College, which created this conference system where the professor and the students just got together every day to work on a shared problem. Um, you had uh, honors uh, systems being created, honors courses. You had comprehensive examinations where they just said to the juniors and seniors, look, here are a bunch of books and you'll take a comp at the end, sort of like I did at grad school. So all of that stuff is a response to the lecture. It's a very explicit um, set of statements about the way people learn. You're not going to learn just by being a stenographer, as they said in the 20s. Right? You're gonna learn um, the engagement with the material, generally in smaller groups, under a professor who doesn't just talk at you, but talks with you. But it doesn't quite change. I mean, then we have the Cold War, and then we have the kind of expansion and growth in enrollment um, that, is, that follows, um, sorry, follows the, uh, the war. So in the Cold War period, post-war era, this expansion that then, necessitates this kind of mass delivery. So there is that kind of push and pull again that we're beginning to see. It is, and that's kind of the contrapuntal and depressing rhythm of the whole book. Um, you know, uh, at every era, the university gets even huger. Mm. Uh, and so the kind of experiments, the kind of alternatives I'm describing get ever more difficult to pull off. So, you know, excuse me, in the wake of the Second World War, you know, the GI Bill has an incredible and transformative effect on the university. By 1947, half of the students are vets, um, which is amazing, you know? Um, uh, and uh, um, the vets are very dissatisfied because they claim they got some good instruction in the army where you kind of broke into groups, you know, smaller battalions, little units, but there suddenly they end up at the University of Minnesota in a class of, you know, 1500. And they're saying, you know, what is this? Um, and of course, there are replies to that. There are other efforts in the 1950s to create smaller discussion sections. Um, uh, but at the same time, you know, you also see uh, um, the use of television. Um, and, you know, television, the argument was, as weird as it might seem to us, that's going to personalize things. 
because instead of being in this you know huge room with all these other psych students you'll be in a much smaller one um, where you can actually see the professor and you'll develop a kind of intimate electronic um, uh, relationship with him. So that was one of the solutions uh, for the time, which is obviously pregnant with meaning right now. Uh, and then, you know, in the 60s and 70s, the same thing, right? There, the boom also comes from the federal government. I mean, it comes from the Higher Education Act, which created grants and loans for students. And also the, you know, the Higher, Higher Ed Facilities Act, which is very obscure, but hugely important. Thanks to that act, there was a point in the late 60s where there's one community college opening per day on average. I mean, just the boom in higher ed. You think about this thing that was like a bunch of little colleges for white dudes um, in a hundred years, just becoming this behemoth, right? 20 million people involved in it. Um, uh, but there again, um, uh, because of these crowds, you have you know, the mass class and those critiques that I described from the Port Huron state and the free speech movement are very much targeted at that. Like, like friends, this is not working. Um, you know, I'm not an IBM card. Do not fold, bend, and mutilate. I mean, this is all the language of the day. Uh, and so what do you get from that? You get experimental colleges. Um, uh, you get so-called tea groups and encounter groups in the classroom. Um, but you also get something called the personalized system of learning in which different courses were broken into modules and you could just take them on your own and, you know, have a test after you completed each one. And this too was going to be personalized in the sense that you did it at your own pace, um, but in other ways, just like TV, radically impersonal. Um, so again, that's the that's the back and forth rhythm of the of the game. Yeah, again, it is that tension that you bring out. And so let me move to now. This is not a chronological conversation, but um, you know, TV and how you said it was the idea was that this was somehow going to make it more personal. Um, it sounds counterintuitive to us at this moment. And yet we are in this moment where everything has gone online and um, the mode of instruction is being driven not by demands by students or by reform, it's being driven by a virus that none of us can see. Um, yet the technology is making it possible for us to actually continue this endeavor. What are your thoughts in this moment as you are teaching and dealing with trying to provide this personalized experience through this medium? Well, look, it's a radical moment, just in a dictionary sense, right? Um, uh, uh, it's radical because there is no precedent. And I think what's really radical about it historically is we all have to go onto the machines. One of the story that I tell in the book is that when we've introduced other machines, uh, going back to radio and then television and so-called teaching machines, which is a whole other B.F. Skinner story. It's generally to bring in others, like new populations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not for people at the University of Pennsylvania, where I teach, like they didn't do teaching machines, right, or TV. You know what? They're doing online instruction now. Um, so everyone has to do it. Everyone is in the same pool. Um, you know, online instruction, you know, has a 30 year history and it predates this moment. But the difference is online instruction was generally reserved for people that aren't like me, right? Um, for people that don't work at elite colleges and universities or you. Online instruction was for the other guy or the other gal, right? 
Um, now it's for everybody. And I think that raises enormous, even existential questions. Um, not just for education, but for our democracy. Um, a lot of my students have told me that it's just not as good. All right, and we can talk about why that is. I happen to agree with them. Um, uh, but if it's not good enough for kids at the University of Pennsylvania, why is it good enough for students at Delaware Community College? That seems to me uh, a, a, an obvious and urgent question that we're all gonna have to address. So this is an interesting point in the moment where, so the virus is a great leveler in this instance um, and is kind of working against all these barriers that have been constructed between elite and the other set of the population that is getting an education um, right. and what's good and what's not good. Um, let me pivot to another question of our times, which is looking at student unrest and the role that student unrest plays in um, changing how we teach and changing what we teach, um, not just how we teach. We're in a moment where there is a demand for more diversity. There is a demand for putting on the table questions that have not been addressed before. How does a historical perspective, you talk about it in your book, you talk about the student unrest, um, unrest that took place at various points and, and the impact that they had on the ways of instruction, on the ways of teaching and how teaching and what was being taught. Um, how does a historical perspective on student unrest give you a particular vantage point to see today from? Well, you know, I would say in comparative terms that, you know, there's been a huge amount of student unrest about questions of equity um, uh, and questions of race, both uh, in our university and larger society. And that was long overdue. And I think it's largely a salutary thing, you know. Um, uh, but thus far, there hasn't been a huge amount of student unrest about pedagogy and teaching. Um, you know, I think we're still waiting for that. Uh, I suppose you could call some of the petitions demanding tuition refunds, right, when the pandemic hit, an exception to that, right? Um, uh, you know, because I think that was a form of student unrest that was uh, uh, explicitly targeted um, at the way we're teaching, not what we're teaching. Um, and I think we're still waiting to see um, how much more of that there will be. You know, um, uh, if the students say it's not as good, well, what are they gonna do about it? I mean, one thing I keep saying to my students is like, I'm on the back nine, man. Like, I'm not gonna be changing this. Like, that's gonna be up to you, you know, not me. I mean, I'm kind of done, you know? Um, uh, and so if the students decide that this isn't good enough either for students at the University of Pennsylvania or Delaware Community College, what are they gonna do about it? Um, uh, uh, and, you know, will there be a kind of organized efforts to try to change the, you know, improve the quality or even change the mode of delivery of college instruction? I think we're waiting to see that. So let me come to the question that you pose in your book, which is why, despite all these moves from different sections of society to change teaching, it continues to remain the same in many ways. Um, how do we account for that? And, and 
from what I understand you say, it's not because we haven't learned how learning can happen. What are the best practices for that? There's been huge development in those areas. We, we know how to create the right environments to make that happen. But there's another reason. Your, your argument is that there is something else that is holding us back. So it's not lack of knowledge of how learning happens. Will yes. you share yeah. with us? It's not lack of knowledge. And uh, if you want some good evidence of that, read Daniel Gublar's book, um, which is, I think, the best recent compendium about what we've learned about college learning. And we've learned a lot. Uh, however, the title of the book is called The Missing Course. <laughs> So basically he reviews all this stuff that we've learned about the way learning happens. And then what he says, it's a little bit of a shaggy dog story. He says, well, yes, we've learned all this, but we're not really applying it because you know, most of the people that teach at our institutions don't really know anything about it. Um, uh, and their own institutions haven't required them to do so. Um, and most of all, their own institutions aren't checking to see whether they are doing so. And this brings me the title of my book, The Amateur Hour. And I've already caught um, a good deal of you know what about that, because a lot of people look at the title and they think that what I'm saying is teaching is bad. And I'm not saying that, I would never say that. I mean, that's sort of nonsensical with millions of people doing it. It's gonna be terrific and terrible and a million things in between. So it's not that teaching is bad because amateurs can be really good. Uh, the best gymnast in my youth was Olga Korbut, and she was an amateur because back then, you know, the Olympics weren't professionalized. So it's not that they're bad. What it is is they're not professional, and they're not professional because there isn't an accepted code of practice about what constitutes good practice, and there isn't an organized effort to determine whether we're following it. So we've got the knowledge. It's in Gublar's book, right? But what we don't have is actually a set of professional practices to inscribe that knowledge in our work and also to you know, evaluate the degree to which we're behaving in accord with that knowledge. Um, so you know, to get this book into print, uh, it had to be run by a whole bunch of scholars like yourself who know about history and they had to make comments about it and write reports about it and I had to respond to them. It's a big song and dance. And they were good reports if one of the readers is out there and they made the book much better. Um, that's called peer review. Well, look, I've been at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm starting my fifth year. Nobody has ever come to evaluate my class. No colleague, no administrator. Um, I have invited administrators to the class, but for the purpose of sharing their knowledge and understanding with the class, which is a whole different thing. They're not there to evaluate me. So what does that tell you? What it tells you is that I'm an amateur. I could be doing anything. And by the way, some people are, that's in the book too. Um, so we just don't have, we have the knowledge, but we don't have the consensus about doing something professional with the knowledge. Um, and that raises the question, that the next obvious question, which is why not, you know? And look, I, I think there are a lot of answers to that, but at the most, to use a loaded term, personal level, I would say that the irreducibly personal nature of teaching is an inhibitor here. Um, and here's why. Um, I assume some of the people tonight are reading my book or have read my book, or maybe they'll just wait for the movie, all right? But they may like the book, they might not like the book, but I have to say, whether they do or not, I will not take it personally. 
either I'll read the comment, I'll say, gee, I should have thought about that. Um, or I'll think, you know, that's sort of off and I don't, I don't really have to pay it any mind because I don't think this person got the point. But in either of those two cases, um, I don't feel like it touches my inner being. If one of these administrators or colleagues comes to my class and says that I didn't teach a very good class, I didn't teach a good class, do I take that personally? Let me think about this. Yes. Yes, I do. Um, and deeply. Um, and you know, I, I think that that's been a really important inhibitor in all of this. You know, we don't want ourselves subjected to that sort of uh, um, uh, critique and review. Uh, it's scary. So uh, let, me, let me come at you with, questions. sorry to interrupt. I mean, the, the review piece makes me think of, you know, the, the difference in the kind of institution I'm at, um, which is a small liberal arts college, which has made um, its identity um, around teaching and teaching well. And as part of someone who's not that far away from having got tenure, um, the process was grueling, not you know, for, for many reasons, but one of them was the kind of incessant surveillance, what felt like incessant surveillance. We, I think Carlton, an institution that I love, has made an art out of over-observing our faculty. And so I had countless senior professors in and out of my classes. And, and I, I have to say, I benefited from their feedback but a lot of the times the feedback was, and this goes back to your point about not having a set of best practices and a, a standard with which to, they would give me feedback from the point of view of how they do things, not looking at my strengths or my weaknesses and telling me how I could improve. And that, that is something that, you know, you hear a lot of junior faculty at institutions like mine talk about, um, but, yeah, and that's, that's a problem. I mean, I think, you know, uh, without naming any names or casting aspersions in order for colleagues, my guess is that some of them had not read Dan Gubler's book, right? Um, and so it does become totally idiosyncratic. It'd be like a doctor saying, you know, uh, this is the way I take out an appendix. Like, I don't know how you do it, but maybe you should try it my way rather than like we have this body of knowledge about the best way to take out an appendix. Like those are different. But there is this tension, right? Which is that what makes our classrooms magical and what makes it work is precisely the fact that it is entirely autonomous. I feel like it's my fiefdom when I walk into my classroom. And I remember there was this, I was teaching in a new class and there was this window and I requested a shade for it because I cannot feel that yeah. I am fully in control until I can shut the door. I've never understood how teachers teach with open doors because yeah. for me, it is a sacred space where I can only animate and come alive and bring my students alive if I kind of preserve it as that sacred space. Right, so and this is why it's this why on there it's so hard to research, right? Because, you know, because it's exactly as you describe, right? It happens behind closed doors. And I think all of us have to figure out a way to open those doors without creating some sort of like awful Foucauldian, you know, <laughs> panopticon effect where everyone is doing 360 evaluations and everybody else and writing reports that don't make anything better. Um, you know, and, and look, that's a danger. And I should say the other inhibitor in all of this, and this goes to kind of uh, intra-university politics and status, is that let's remember that, um, the low um, uh, school on the academic totem pole at any big university is the ed school. 
Um, uh, and so, um, uh, you know, at different points in my book, there are these depressing junctures where somebody from the ed school says, you know, I can, I can help you improve your teaching. And the people on the other end said, you know, I've looked at some of the students you produce for the K through 12 schools and also some of the Mickey Mouse classes that you teach. And I'm gonna take a pass on this, you know, Mr. Ed School. You know, it seems like you don't really have a good handle on how to train or evaluate K through 12 teachers. Like, I think I'm gonna draw the line on you doing the same, uh, um, uh, you know, for us. And again, some of this was fair criticism and some of it was unfair. But as somebody who spent his whole career with a foot both in the education school and in the arts and sciences, I understand the status differences. They are massive. Um, and the fact that the ed school has lower status makes changing educational practice at the university writ large a harder lift. It just does. So this has just occurred to me. So how does the how does that play with the power that student evaluations then have over assessing um, a professor. So the ed school people are considered low status, then students in many ways become the people who have the last verdict. And with the shift in from citizen to consumer, yeah. where the customer is always right, where we're pandering and we see this move towards great inflation that you talk about and almost arguably a decline in the quality of teaching precisely because we're pandering. Yeah. I mean, look, um, I, uh, we could talk forever about student evaluations. And incidentally, Scott Gelber wrote a whole book about them. Um, uh, but um, uh, my basic take is student evaluations are important. They can tell you important things. Um, they can tell you, for example, if a professor returns written work um, in a punctual fashion, which turns out to be hugely important, by the way, to students learning. They can tell you if the professor is on, on time for class. They can tell you if the professor makes herself available outside of class. And those things matter, right? But here's what they can't tell you, how much the student learned. It turns out that we're just bad evaluators of that, of our own learning. So when you look at uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, the evaluations and you take the ones that are outstanding and then you test those kids to see how much they learned, you can't really correlate their learning with the quality of the evaluation. Um, and to your point, it turns out that the best predictor of a high evaluation is the grade the student expects to receive in the class. Now, the defenders of the system say, well, that's because the student who expects to get an A has learned a lot. And you can count me a skeptic on that score. I mean, it, it, it's, um, uh, there's no question that it has perverted the system. And I hope people take my point. I'm not against student evaluations. I think we should do them. But the reason we've come to rely on them so heavily is we don't have other systems evaluation. And we need both of those. We need something else. We don't want to replace student evaluations. We should be supplementing them um, with informed peer review. I like that. And from my own experience where student evaluations count for a lot, it's, it's not, the problem is not with the student evaluations. They can, as you said, tell you so much. It's about how you read the student evaluations as well. Right. We need best practices of how do you make sense of what a student evaluation says and how are different factors playing into them, um, some of which are the obvious race and gender. Um, you, you talk about how race and gender and those questions actually change the nature of teaching and the 
content of teaching. Can you say a little more about that? There are great books about the way that African-Americans especially um, uh, through their own effort and protest created entirely new programs and, uh, and disciplines um, uh, uh, at the American University. So the whole Africana and Black Studies movement was really um, spawned by student protests. And uh, Stefan Bradley uh, um, has a terrific book on the subject. Um, but you know, that's about, again, that's about the curriculum, which is, by the way, really important, you know, I mean, and matters hugely. Um, but I would say that Africana studies, just like biology or physics, can be taught well or taught poorly. Um, uh, and the question of what our curriculum should be, although it's related to the question of how we teach it, it's also distinct. Um, and, you know, I think that one thing that's happened because of student evaluations is that um, professors have become more wary sometimes of addressing questions of race and gender because they feel if they say the wrong thing, that their eval will go down. And this I find incredibly depressing and in many ways perpendicular to uh, the purposes of the kind of stories that Stefan Bradley tells in his book, right? About the way that we brought all these other perspectives in. Like what good is that gonna be? What good is that gonna do if people are biting their tongues when we come to that subject? Um, but there's no question that over the past 20, 30 years, We've seen that and it's documented in my book. I mean, a lot of professors just say it. You know, they say, that's not a subject that I want to touch because a lot of my wherewithal is going to rest on my eval. And if I say the wrong thing about one of those subjects, I'll be toast. Well, in today's day and age, it's not just about the eval. It's also about professional consequences of raising things that might offend someone because offense is taken seriously in a way that is frankly in stymieing our ways of discussing really complex issues. So the most recent fire survey that's just come out about right. students and how comfortable they feel talking about certain issues shows that actually some of the most pressing problems of our times are the issues that students are biting their tongues on. And what is the kind, what is the quality of that kind of education um, where people cannot talk about these things. Right. But also this, it's not just, you know, this, to assess the quality of teaching, it's not just what the professor is doing in the classroom, it's also the environment in which they are doing it and how far they and their degree of being able to approach questions freely is shaped by the context that they're in. Right. No question. And this is why, you know, your door closing and window closing metaphor, Amna, although I like it, it only goes so far, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Because you can't close the door and the window, right? Um, because the students are all coming in with a kind of a set of predispositions and a set of cultures, right? Um, uh, that, um, you know, that they get from the larger environment, from the huge broad political environment, but also from the campus environments. And obviously, I mean, this has been a question, I think, at the heart of heterodox you know, uh, which is, you know, which questions are we um, excluding, right? Um, which questions are we not talking about? And there's something very painful to me about the idea that, you know, we've expended so much effort, fiscal, political, cultural, to diversify our campuses, which I think is the best thing that's happened to universities in my lifetime. But at the same time, we're not leveraging the upside of it. The whole rationale of diversity is that when we bring in people 
from different backgrounds, we're going to create a more rich educational environment because they're going to share ideas with each other. But if we're not creating context, as you were saying, in the classroom and, and elsewhere, where that can happen, it's like we're not getting the we're we're not like we're not getting the juice, like we're not getting the advantage of all this effort. That's fantastic. You've just so beautifully outlined the connection between viewpoint diversity, which is at the heart of an intellectual enterprise, and diversity as we understand it or have come to understand it more broadly. And of course, that the two are connected, but emphasizing visual or social diversity at the cost of viewpoint diversity really undermines the mission of higher education. It does. I mean, and look, it's all around us. And, you know, ironically, I think the other sad thing is it probably makes the sort of active learning strategies that we've discovered work possibly less likely, mm -hmm. um, uh, less utilized. Because if you take active learning seriously, you actually don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. And if you do know where it's going to go, it's probably not that active. Um, and so look, these subjects you're talking about, they are loaded, right? They're emotional, right? They're highly tied to students' identity. They're difficult, right? Um, uh, but, but again, you know, if, if we can't um, create environments where we can talk about them, then what's going to happen is the professor is just going to say a bunch of stuff. Or maybe there'll be a pseudo discussion in which people say things that they feel will be approved by the regime, but you won't have an actual discussion. As I was reading your book, I was thinking about, you know, how is, how is the relationship between the student and the teacher conceived of? Um, and how different it is over, uh, even in our times, even within my own lifetime, com coming from Pakistan, having spent time in Britain, been in South Africa, now here, how people expect to be taught and how people expect for you to deliver the material or to engage with them is so different. Right, and, and I think, I mean, behind your very eloquent comment, I think is the question of authority. You know, what is the authority of, quote, the professor? or if you will, the teacher. What kind of authority should they exert in the classroom? One of the things that I try to communicate to my students is that compared to what there is to know, I don't know Jack. Like I know more than them about the subjects that I teach. Let's hope, you know, if I don't, there's kind of a problem. Um, but universities are full of preening people that think they know way more than they do. And grad students can be actually the worst about this because they're so anxious. And I always tell my students, when you see somebody preening, just imagine they're just wearing a shirt and it says, compared to what there is to know, I don't know Jack. And everyone's wearing it. Like, it doesn't matter if you say you are or not. Like, you just are. And you're just trying to move the ball forward just a little bit. And I have spent my life trying to teach myself about the history of schools and colleges. But a book like this, I mean, I got to tell you, it's a humbling experience because I did the best I could. But like, this is not the history of college teaching. It's a history of college teaching. Um, it's narrow and bounded and blinkered and limited in a million different ways, I think, or at least I hope that lots of people younger than me are going to come back to this subject and just do it way better way better.
That's Professor Jonathan Zimmerman speaking with me about his book, The Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America. We spoke together in November, and you can find out more about our events, our podcasts, the newsletter, and the mission of Heterodox Academy at our website, heterodoxacademy.org. Sign up to be a member or a friend. I'm Amna Khalid, and thank you for listening.